what we want to do this morning is we want to go back to look at the origin of the great controversy between good and evil. We need to study the history of the conflict in order to find out why is it that Satan is so angry with God's people in the last days and why he is just working overtime and so determined to wipe out God's end time remnant church. We go back to the past to understand the present. And so now let's take a look at the origin of the controversy and discover why did this controversy begin in the first place and what is the main issues in the conflict between good and evil. Notice now as we go to chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. The Bible says in Revelation 12, verse 7 through 9, it talks about the origin of the conflict. The Bible says, and there was war where? In heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought in his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast where? Out. That old serpent called the what? The devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Here we find, brothers and sisters, that war broke loose in the very atmosphere of God in heaven itself. Lucifer, who was a powerful and glorious angel, began an insurrection against God and against the kingdom of God right there in God's kingdom. Now, friends, why would this glorious angel by the name of Lucifer rebel against his maker? The Bible says concerning Lucifer in Ezekiel 28 verse 12 that he was full of wisdom and what? Perfect in beauty. You see, we learned on previous subjects that God ordained Lucifer to be a covering cherub. He was the one that was to cover to protect the holy law of God. He was ordained very close to the throne of God, and he was to uphold law and order in the kingdom of heaven. And the Bible says that he was perfect in all of his ways, but friends, he, was also, he also had perfect freedom, freedom to choose, freedom to make decisions. And the Bible says that he did not make the right decisions. It says in the book of Ezekiel chapter 28, now verse 15, it says, you were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. What was found in the heart of Lucifer? Bible says he was perfect until he began to practice iniquity, until iniquity was found in him. And friends, another word for iniquity, write it down. The word iniquity is the same word as lawlessness, as what? So this glorious, powerful angel that was ordained to uphold God's law and God's order that sat right next to the throne of God in heaven, he began to rebel against the very law he was ordained to uphold and protect. The Bible says iniquity was found in his heart. In other words, he began to rebel against the law because the word iniquity simply means lawlessness. Well, what exactly happened? How did he break the law of God? Notice we read before in the book of Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 14, the Bible says, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said where? Remember, iniquity was found in him in his heart. Well, what was it? What was it that he was beginning to break and resist in his heart? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into the heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like who? And friends, who is the most high? That's God. And so here we find iniquity sprung up in the heart of Lucifer as he began to be more concerned with his own will, his own desires, his own agenda instead of God's will. It was I will, I will, I will. He wanted to do his own thing. And notice what his desire really was. He said, I want to sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Friends, that's where God's throne is. He was saying, I want to sit where God sits. I will be like the most high. In other words, Lucifer wanted the power that only belonged to God. 
He was saying, I want to be like God. I want to be God. I will. Not thy will, but I will. And friends, he was claiming to have the power that only God has. And he basically was saying, I will be like God, and I don't need God, and I don't need God's law in order to be like God. I can do it on my own. Here is the origin of self-righteousness. The origin of what? Because, friends, when you think about it, he said he wanted to be like the Most High. And what is the Most High like? He is righteous. He is holy. He is perfect. And so in saying, I will be like the Most High, Lucifer essentially was saying, I will be righteous. I will be holy. I will be perfect. And I'm going to do it on my own. I don't need God's help. I don't need God's law to tell me how to do it. I can do it all by myself. I'm a powerful and glorious angel. You see, friends, he was claiming and accusing God as being a selfish tyrant. He was claiming that God's law is what kept creation in bondage. And he began to spread these lies to the other angels, saying to the angels, we can be holy, we can be righteous, we can be perfect, and we don't need God in order to do it. We don't need God's law in order. We can do it on our own. He began to spread these lies in heaven. And this, my friends, is what began the controversy between good and evil. And friends, essentially what Lucifer was doing in heaven, he was bringing an indictment against God and against his holy law. He was bringing a what? An indictment. In other words, he was accusing God, accusing him of being a selfish tyrant, of keeping creation and the angels in bondage to a law that was not necessary in order for the angels to be holy and righteous and good. And unfortunately, friends, the Bible tells us one-third of the holy angels join Lucifer in rebellion against God and against the law of God. And friends, instead of him being destroyed, the Bible says that he was cast out of heaven to the earth. Why did God not destroy Lucifer right there and then? Because, friends, remember, we studied before that God is a just and a fair God. Can you say amen? I want you to notice in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verses 16 through 19, we find a heavenly principle on how to deal with conflict and controversy. And, friends, God lives by this principle himself. This was a principle that was given to man to help us to deal with controversy. But friends, in the great controversy between good and evil, this was the principle that caused God not to destroy Satan right away. Notice what it says in Deuteronomy 19, verses 16 through 19. Bible says, if a false witness, say what kind of witness? Now friends, tell me, was Lucifer uh, witnessing falsely against God? Yes or no? He was given a false witness. He was saying that God's law can't be kept, that God was a selfish tyrant, that we can be like God and we don't need God in order to do it. It was a false witness witness. He was lying to the other angels. And so notice, if a, false wit- if a false witness rises against any man to testify against him of wrongdoing, then both men in the what? Controversy shall stand before the Lord before the priests and the judges. And the judges shall make careful inquiry. In other words, they are to investigate the accusations of the witness against the accused. They are to investigate to see whether or not the accusation is true. The judges shall make careful inquiry. And indeed, if the witness is a false witness who has testified falsely against his brother, then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother. In other words, he will suffer the punishment of, or the evil that he sought upon the one that he was accusing. And then it says, so shall you put away the what? Evil from among you. So how does God put away evil? Before he can do it, there first has to be an investigation and the false charges must be proven false. And only when the charges are proven false could God put away the evil of Satan's accusations. Only then could the devil be eradicated from the universe. And so this is one of the main reasons why God did not destroy Lucifer right at the beginning of the conflict. Why? Because Lucifer brought an indictment against God. He accused God of being a selfish tyrant. And so before he could eradicate evil, 
destroy Satan, he first must show the universe that his accusations are completely false. The false accusation must be first proven false. Only then can evil be eradicated. And friends, here's the thing, though. The accusation cannot be proven false by the accuser nor the accused. You see, neither the accuser or the accused could serve as the judge to determine if the accusation is true or false. You see, the controversy between two parties must be settled by an unbiased third party. By what? Therefore, the judge or the jury in any controversy cannot be involved directly in the controversy itself. Otherwise, they would be biased. And here's the problem, friends. The judge of the universe is now the one being accused. And if God himself judged the ones that were accusing him, then Lucifer would have claimed that this was an unfair trial. You see, God, because he was the one being accused, he could not serve as the judge in this controversy. If he did, it would have been perceived as an unfair trial. Lucifer would have claimed that God was being unfair and dictatorial, and so God could not judge Lucifer himself. He needed a third party to do the work of a judge. So what would God do in order to remove evil? What does God need, brothers and sisters? God needs a judge or a jury to examine the controversy between him and Satan for themselves. God needs a third party. And by the way, friends, all the angels are disqualified from being a judge or jury because all of them had chosen sides. Isn't that right? One-third of the angels sided with Lucifer. Two-third of the angels sided with God. And so all the angels are disqualified. They can't serve the part as a judge or a jury in the controversy between good and evil. And so, friends, as Lucifer is cast out, now God begins what some have called jury selection. He's looking for a jury to examine the controversy. And guess who the jury is, friends? As Lucifer is cast out, God now makes kings to examine the controversy. Notice what it says in Ezekiel. 28 and verse 17. The Bible says, speak about Lucifer, thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. I will cast thee to the ground. In Revelation it says, I will cast thee to the earth. And I will lay thee before what? Kings that they may behold thee. In other words, I'm going to lay you before kings so that they can examine you. They can look upon you. They can see if your claims and your accusations against me are true. And friends, I can just imagine as God made this proclamation, I can imagine Lucifer wondering, who are these kings that are going to judge me? Who are these kings that will behold me? And friends, you know who they are? It's the human race, friends. As Lucifer is cast out of heaven, God now creates Adam and Eve in the human race. This is the third party, the unbiased party, that is to look upon the controversy between good and evil. In fact, the Bible tells us that we're going to serve as judges, judging the angels in the controversy. Notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 and 3, the Bible says, Do you not know that who's going to judge the world? The saints shall judge the world. Know ye not that we shall judge? So who's going to judge the fallen angels? Who's going to judge Lucifer? It says that the saints are God's people. And the Bible calls us kings. Do you know why? Because when God created man, he gave to mankind dominion over the earth. In other words, we were to serve as kings or rulers over the world. As God is the king of kings. We are the earthly kings in, subje in subjection to the king of kings. In fact, we see this in the book of Revelation. Notice Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 and 6. It says, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, and the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the who? Kings of the earth. And who's the kings of the earth? To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father. And so the Bible tells us that God created the human race to be kings, to have dominion over the world, and to serve the part as the jurors 
to examine the controversy that began in heaven between God and Lucifer. And so now, Lucifer is cast out. You see, brothers and sisters, God created humanity to glorify him and to vindicate his character before the universe. Mankind has given dominion over the world. We are the kings that are to judge Satan in the controversy. But why us? Why would God choose us? Well, friends, think about it. The reason why he chose us is because we are the only ones that would qualify as a, as a we are the only ones that have the qualifications to be a juror. You see, a juror must have at least three qualifications. How many? And I hope you write them down. Number one, a qualified juror, number one, must have first, little firsthand knowledge of the crime. If they had too much information, they would be biased. And so a qualified juror, number one, must have little firsthand knowledge of the crime. And friends, Adam and Eve fit that. Why? Because they were not there when the crime was committed in heaven, when Lucifer began the rebellion, Adam and Eve were not there, so they had little firsthand knowledge. Number two, a qualified juror must be a law-abiding citizen. And so to Adam and Eve, at first, they obeyed the law of God. They trusted in God. They were law-abiding citizens. And then number three, a good qualified juror must know the difference between good and evil. And so too, God gave to man this wisdom. God said, of all the trees of the garden, you may freely eat except for the one that is in the midst of the garden. In other words, mankind had knowledge and they knew the difference between good and evil. And so as God creates mankind to be the jurors to judge Satan in the controversy, I can imagine Satan trembled at the creation of man. And he said to himself, are these the ones that are going to judge me and seal my fate? Are these these the ones that are going to prove my accusations as, as false? And unfounded, and see, Satan was afraid at the creation of man. He didn't know what exactly to do, but as he began to think, the only way that Satan could come out on top in the controversy, the only way was he had to now attack the jury. He had to do one of two things. Either he would disqualify them or he would destroy them. You see, the devil knows that his accusations are false. So his only hope for a mistrial in the controversy is to disqualify or to destroy the jury. That's the human race. You see, Satan could not destroy the human race because God was protecting his children. So instead of seeking to destroy them, Satan sought to disqualify them as law-abiding citizens. If he could cause the human race to break the holy law of God, then they would no longer be law-abiding citizens, and therefore, they would not be able to be a juror. They would not be able to judge Lucifer of breaking the law if they themselves broke the law as well. And so here we find, brothers and sisters, notice how Satan sought to disqualify the human race from judging him. Now we go back to Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. The Bible says, and the great dragon was cast out. What is he called? The great dragon was cast out, that old serpent, or the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan which deceives how much of the world? The whole world. He was cast out into the earth and his angels were cast out with him. Here we find Satan seeking to disqualify the jury. It says now he comes in the form of a serpent and he deceives the whole world. Oh friends, when did the serpent deceive the whole world? Do you remember that? When exactly was this? When, when is this verse pointing us to? The time that the serpent deceived the whole world was when he deceived Adam and Eve. In deceiving Adam and Eve, He deceived the whole world. And so now we find as the creation of man uh, uh, comes into, as man comes into existence to be jurors, to be judges over Satan, he deceives them and thus disqualifies them of being uh, the the jurors because they are no longer law-abiding citizens. Now, friends, the question is this. What kind of deception did the serpent employ? How did he deceive, how did he deceive Adam and Eve? 
He used the same methods that he used to the angels with the angels in heaven. Notice what he said to our first parents. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 and 5, the Bible says, And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not what? In other words, God said you're going to die, but God is not telling the truth. Eve, listen to me. You won't surely die. God is lying about eating this fruit. He's not telling you the truth because he's a selfish tyrant. He's keeping you in bondage. You see, friends, Satan is putting a question mark where God had placed a period. You won't surely die. Well, what's going to happen then? For God doth know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open and you shall be as God's knowing good and evil. In other words, the reason why God is withhold, withholding this fruit from you, it's not because you're going to die, Eve. You won't die, but you're going to be like God. Your eyes are going to be open. And God does not want you to be like him. He's a selfish God. He is a restrictive God. His law is keeping you in bondage. And so Eve, eat and you can live and you can be free. Don't keep yourself in subjection to this cruel tyrant. Eat and live. What is, he, what is Lucifer doing, friends? What is Satan doing? He's doing the same thing he did in heaven. He's causing individuals to think that God is a God that is a tyrant, that his law cannot be kept. He's basically saying, you can be God. Remember, what did Lucifer first want in his heart? He wanted to be God, right? He said, we can be like God, and we don't need God to be like God. We can be righteous. We can be holy. We can be, we can be perfect, and we don't need God's help. That's what he's saying to Eve. Eve, you can be like God, and you don't need God. You don't need his law to tell you how to do it. Here we find the antinomian spirit that Satan is implanting in the hearts of our first parents. He's saying that God's law is a law of bondage. Eat and you can be free. And friends, in causing man to sin, he disqualified them as being jurors in the controversy between good and evil. He succeeded in bribing the jury. That's what he did, friends. He bribed the jury, and as a result, friends, as soon as, as, as mankind sinned, they were no longer able to be uh, jurors in the controversy, in their sinful condition. But friends, I'm so thankful that as soon as there was sin, there was a Savior. Can you say amen? And so immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, God came in the cool of the day in the garden. He made the first step. He took the initiative to search for his children that were lost and hiding. And then God gave his first gospel promise, Genesis 3, verse 15. God gave the promise to Adam and Eve, but it was a threat to Satan, the, the serpent who caused and disqualified the jurors. Notice what God said. This is the first prophecy in the Bible. Genesis 3, 15, it says, God is speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity. I will put what? That's hatred. The word enmity is hatred or the ability to hate evil. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This was the first gospel prophetic promise. It was a promise to Adam and Eve, but it was a threat to Satan. God essentially said, yes, Satan, you succeeded in causing my children to join you in rebelling against me and my law. But I'm now going to give the gift of enmity. I'm going to put enmity in their hearts so that they can know the difference between good and evil so that they can have a hatred towards you and your seed, your offspring. And it says that the woman's seed is personified as a he. Did you notice that? It says her seed shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Friends, do you know who that seed is that God is referring to? The seed of the woman is none other than Jesus Christ, according to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 16. Now, the woman is much more than just Eve, friends. The woman represents the church, the church of all ages. And so what God is saying that as, as mankind begins to populate the earth, the woman's seed will, 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 will come through, uh, will come eventually. It's talking about Jesus Christ coming to this world, coming through the seed of the woman. 
And when he comes, he will deliver a deadly blow to the head of the serpent, that's Satan. But at the same time, the serpent will be able to bruise his heel. Friends, this prophecy is referring to the death of Jesus. When Jesus died, that was a deadly blow to the head of the serpent. But at the same time, it was a bite to the heel of Jesus Christ. So this is the first gospel promise. The seed of the woman will undo what the serpent had done. The woman is the church, and the seed of the woman is none other than Jesus Christ. And God gave the gift of eternal enmity between good and evil. And friends, listen, this enmity will lead to the final destruction of Satan in the last days. You see, friends, when you study the Bible, the Bible is really the biblical story between two seeds. The Bible traces the story, the history of the war between two seeds, two kings, and two types of kingdoms. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, the dragon kingdom versus the lamb's kingdom. And friends, as we trace now the history of this war from beginning to its end, we see that this enmity between good and evil, this war, this conflict, this antagonism against good and evil will grow stronger and stronger down throughout the ages as each side of the controversy matures more fully. I want you to notice the enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman was manifested right away in the first seeds of Eve, the first children, Cain and Abel. You see, Cain and Abel, brothers and sisters, represents two sides in the conflict between good and evil. If you remember the story of, of Cain and Abel, Abel brought to God a sacrifice of a lamb. And Abel's worship was acceptable to God because he brought that which God required. Can you say amen? And his worship was pleasing to God. You know why? Because Abel's worship was not centered in what he gave to God, but it was centered in what God was giving to man. Because what did that lamb give? What did the lamb give? The lamb gave its life. And so this was worship that was acceptable because it wasn't what, what, what Abel was giving to God, but rather it was what the lamb was giving. That lamb represents Christ. You see, brothers and sisters, worship is always acceptable to God as long as it's centered not in, in, in what we do for God, but in what God has done and is doing for us. Can you say amen? Because what Abel brought to God was nothing. He brought nothing, friends. It was the lamb that gave its life. And so his worship was acceptable because he brought that which God required. He was obedient to the word of God, and thus his worship was acceptable because it was in harmony with, with, with what God required with the law of God. But then you notice Cain demonstrated the seed of the serpent. He demonstrated the dragon's kingdom's uh, philosophy. In fact, notice, Cain, instead of bringing to God what God required, a lamb, he brought a substitute. He brought a what? And what did he bring? He brought, instead of a lamb, he brought the fruit of his own labor. He's the one that tilled the ground that caused the, uh, the, 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 the fruits, the trees to produce fruits. And he brought the fruit of his own labor. It was a substitute from what God, what God had required. And friends, the fruit of his labors represents the fruit of right, our own self-righteousness. And his worship was rejected because he was giving to God that which came from his own work, his own labor. And friends, a worship that is centered about, around what we give to God and what we do to God is always an abomination in the eyes of God. You see, friends, this, there's nothing wrong with being, bringing fruit in addition to what God requires. But to bring fruit as a substitute... It caused Cain's worship to be rejected. And friends, even though he brought it to the right God, and even though he brought it in sincerity, you see, he brought something, but not what God required. And so his worship was presumptuous disobedience. And as a result, his worship was rejected. 
But when he saw that his brother Abel's worship was accepted, it led him to be angry with the true worshipers, so much so that he came upon Abel and he murdered his own brother. You see, friends, this is the enmity between the two seeds, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. We see it demonstrated in, the, in Cain and Abel. You see, the antagonism and the hatred against good caused Cain to, to destroy, to kill the true worshiper of God, his brother Abel. And so we find that Satan, notice what he does. Satan destroys Abel from being a juror, and he disqualifies Cain from being a juror as well, causing Cain to break the law of God. And as a result of this terrible sin, the Bible tells us that God put a mark on Cain. He put a what? And friends, the mark that God put on Cain is a symbol of the final mark that will be placed upon the wicked at the end of time, the mark of the beast, friends. You see, the story of Cain is a foundational story that teaches us about the mark of the beast at the end of time. Because Cain brought the fruits of his own labors as a substitute for God's true worship, God's true sacrifice. And so, too, we're going to discover this coming Tuesday when we talk about the mark of the beast, that the mark of the beast is also a substitute system of worship that is centered around man's works instead of God's rest. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that this coming Tuesday. And so the mark in Revelation, just as it led Cain to persecute his brother Abel, so too those who receive the mark of the beast are going to persecute the true worshipers of God, those who have the seal of the living God. And so, friends, we see the first uh, the signs of the, uh, 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 or we see the, 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 the enmity between the two seeds, Cain and Abel, at its very beginning. But as time continue on, this, the disobedience of Cain brought all kinds of evil into our world to the point where almost the entire world was in rebellion against God. They were all disqualified as being jurors in the controversy. And notice what happens during the time of Noah. Genesis chapter 6, verse 5 and 6 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only what? Evil continually. Almost the whole world was disqualified for jury duty. The wickedness of mankind matured into the cup of, of the wrath of God was full and it overflowed in judgments in a worldwide flood. The world was destroyed. All the wickedness was, was cleansed and washed away. And after the flood, man, after the flood, man began to repopulate the earth. And then we find the two sides, the two seeds, the two kingdoms beginning to appear again. One group went to build the Tower of Babel. And friends, this tower that touched the earth, that ascended to the heavens, was also, also a symbol of the works of man's hands as a means of salvation. You see, they built this tower just in case God would destroy the world with a flood. That if the flood would, if another flood would come, they built this tower so that they could climb up the tower and save themselves. You see, the Tower of Babel represented salvation by works. This is the dragon's kingdom. It's the seed of the serpent. And by the way, do you know what the word Babel means? It literally means gateway of the gods. In other words, this is their gate to become God. Remember what was Lucifer's first desire in his heart when iniquity was found? He wanted to be God. And so we see that his kingdom, his seed, is being passed upon those who built the Tower of Babel. They built this tower because they wanted to be God. In other words, this tower was their self-sufficiency. If the flood comes, we don't need God to save us. In other words, we can save ourselves. We can climb up to the heavens by our own good works. You see, the works of our hands is good enough. We can live without the covenant promise in the sky. You remember the bow, the rainbow in the sky? Representing God's covenant, his promise, his law. We don't need that. We have this tower. We can save ourselves. These, friends, were the dragon followers. It's the seed of the serpent. And all of these were disqualified for jury duty 
and Satan rejoiced. But I'm thankful that God stepped in. The Bible tells us that he confused the languages of the individuals that were building the Tower of Babel. As they continued to build, all of a sudden, one called for brick and instead the other brought up mortar in place of it. And so the languages were confused and later on, Babel and Babylon came to be known as the place of confusion. And groups that could understand each other went their own ways. And this is what developed the different languages and dialects of the world. And then later, right on that spot of confusion at the Tower of Babel, the dragon decided to build up his own city, his own kingdom, his own government of wickedness on the earth. You see, friends, the, the dragon's first world headquarters was, was right there at the Tower of Babel. It was at this place that he would set up an organized system of confusion, a system of counterfeit worship. This is the place that he would propagate his antinomianism, his lawlessness and iniquity. And friends, it was at the Tower of Babel that the sun god, the witch god? The sun god was the great god of the dragon empire. And from this place called Babylon, Ur of the Chaldees, is where God called his servant Abraham to come out of. You see, now Satan is setting up his own earthly kingdom a dragon kingdom. And so now God calls a man by the name of Abraham to begin another kingdom, another nation, a nation of righteousness by faith. But Abraham could not do it amongst the dragon followers there in Ur of the Chaldees. That's Babylon. He had to come out of that wicked place. And so God called him out so that he could establish a new nation of righteousness, a people who would uphold the claims of God's holy law. And they couldn't do it amongst the dragon followers. So he's called out and Abraham went not knowing exactly where he was going. But he went out in faith, and because of his faith, he was made righteous, and he was called to preserve the seed of the woman and to uphold the claims of God's holy law. Notice what it says in Genesis 17, verse 6 and 7. I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of thee, and what? Kings shall come out of thee. What are the kings? The jurors. Do you remember that? Our lady before kings, and so God is saying to Abraham, kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my Friends, another word for covenant is my laws. I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. And so God called Abraham to be the progenitor and protector of the seed of kings, of jurors. It was a nation, a new nation of righteousness by faith. In fact, notice in Genesis 18 verses 18 and 19, Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do what? Justice and judgment. In other words, these are going to be my jurors who are going, to, uh, who are going by their own life, who are going to prove Satan's accusations as false. They're going to uphold the claims of my holy law. You see, friends, through the seed of Abraham, true judgment would be established in the world. And friends, the dragon almost disqualified Abraham as a juror. And you know how he, how he did it? The same methods he used in the past. By causing Abraham to fulfill God's promise by the works of his own hands. You remember when Abraham came into Hagar? He did it, why? To help God fulfill the promise. In other words, Abraham, lacking in patience, tried to do what God said that he would do for him. In other words, he took matters into his own hands with Hagar. He basically said, let me help God fulfill his promise. And so he went into Hagar and had the son Ishmael. And friends, Ishmael represents the fruit of our own labors. It represents salvation by works. Whereas Isaac was the fruit of God's promise. Not our works, but the promise, the word, the covenant 
of God. You see, brothers and sisters, Abraham was almost disqualified, but praise the Lord for his patience and his mercy upon Father Abraham. Can you say amen? And so we find the seed of the woman continued down through the line, not of Ishmael, but the line of Isaac. And they are seen through the faithful remnant of the Israelite nation all throughout the Old Testament, all the way to the time of Christ. We see the seed of the woman coming through the faithful line of God's people who were faithful to the covenant. Now, meanwhile, the seed of the dragon also continued. And it continued to organize and, to, and develop into a succession of mighty nations of the past. You see, from the Tower of Babel, Satan's, the dragon's first world headquarters, came the kingdom of Babylon. And friends, was this God's kingdom or was it a dragon kingdom? Babylon was a proud and rich and rise and a self-sufficient kingdom. These were the dragon followers. And after Babylon came the, came the Medo-Persian empire, the Persians who passed the laws to annihilate the people of God, they were the dragon followers. This was the seed of the serpent. It was continuing down through Greece with their pantheon of many gods, exalting human wisdom claiming to be wiser than God. This was a dragon kingdom. It was the seed of the serpent. And then after Greece, the seed continued to the kingdom of Rome. Rome with its persecuting laws that enslaved the people of God. This was the dragon kingdom, the seed of the serpent. And now it was during the time of the pagan Roman Empire. Now it was time for the seed of the woman to come into the world. You see, the seed of the woman represents Christ, the Messiah. They would bruise and crush the head of the serpent. And he came during the time of the dragon kingdom of Rome. It was now time for him to appear, born of a woman, born under the law. Let's read it now in Bible prophecy. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, we go back to the chapter about the controversy. It says, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she, being with child, cried, travailing in birth, and pained to be delivered. Here is Revelation's true beauty. It's a woman that is clothed with natural and supernatural light. Who exactly is this woman that Jesus, the seed, is about to come through? Who's the woman, friends? Many people think it's Mary. But friends, it's true that Mary did give birth to Jesus in a physical, literal way. But friends, this woman is not Mary. Why? Because this is a prophetic vision. The woman represents not Mary. It represents God's true people down throughout the ages. In fact, notice what the Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 6 and verse 2. I have likened the daughter of Zion to a comely and delicate what? So the daughter of Zion represents, is symbolized by a woman, a beautiful woman. This is God's beauty. And then you compare this with Isaiah 51 and verse 16. Who is Zion? Say unto Zion, thou art my what? People. And so the woman who is Zion represents the people of God, the church, those who are faithful. These were the ones that, that upheld the claims of God's holy law and were faithful to the covenant. And so this woman that Jesus, the seed, is about to come through, it represents God's church, friends. It represents the faithful throughout the ages. Here is the beautiful bride of the Lamb. And what exactly makes her beautiful? She is beautiful because she is clothed with the light from the heavens. Did you notice? Three characteristics. She is clothed with the sun. She is standing upon the moon. And she has a crown of 12 stars. In other words, she is beautiful because she is shining with the light of the sun, moon, and stars. And friends, what do, what do the sun, moon, and stars represent? Notice what it says in Psalms 19 and verse 1. It says that the heavens declare the what? The glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. In other words, the heavens, the sun, moon, and stars declares God's glory. She is shining with these things. It's a symbol that she is shining not with her own glory of self-righteousness, but she is shining with the glory of God himself. Can you say amen? She's clothed with the sun. What does this mean? Write it down very quickly as we go through these symbols. What does the sun represent in prophecy? In Psalms 84 verse 11, the Bible says, 
that the Lord God is a what? Sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and... So the Bible tells us that the sun is a symbol of the glory and the grace of God. She's clothed with the sun, the glory and grace of God. In fact, notice another one. In Malachi chapter 4 and verse 2, the Bible says, But unto you that fear my name shall the sun of what? Righteousness arise with healing in his wings. This is talking about Jesus Christ, the seed, the son of righteousness. So we find that the sun represents the righteousness, the grace, and the glory of God. So when the Bible tells us that the woman is clothed with the sun, it simply means that she is covered with the righteousness of the sun, Jesus Christ. Not self-righteousness, but Christ. Perfect. In other words, she is righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? That's what makes her beautiful, friends. Not her own glory, but the glory of God. And the Bible also tells us that she is standing upon the moon. The moon is under her feet. Well, what does the moon represent? Write it down. Psalms 89 verse 37 tells us, it shall be established forever as the moon and as a what? Faithful witness in heaven. The Bible tells us that the moon is the faithful witness in heaven. And tell me, friends, what does the moon witness of? Tell me, does the moon have its own light, yes or no? No. Where does the moon get its light from? From the sun in the heavens. Isn't that right? The moon simply reflects the glory and the light of the sun. And the Bible says that this moon is a faithful witness. Well, tell me, friends, what do we have that reflects the light of Jesus? What do we have that reveals the glory of God? What is it that we can look upon that shows who God really is? What is the faithful witness of Jesus? It is none other than the Word of God, the Bible, friends. It is a solid rock, a sure foundation. The written Word is a reflection of the living Word. And the Bible does not have light in of itself. It only has light as it reflects the light of the glory of Jesus Christ and points us to the Son, Jesus. Can you say amen? In fact, Jesus said it like this in the book of John, chapter 5, and verse 39. Write it down. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which, what? Testify of me. What is another word for testify? Witness. Friends, what is the faithful witness to Jesus? It's the word of God. And friends, the scribes and Pharisees, they studied the word of God because they thought that in the word itself was life. But they missed out the main point of the word, and that was Jesus. And so Jesus is saying that the scriptures only have power as they point us and bring us to him, to the Savior, Jesus Christ. Are you with me, yes or no? Yes or no? All right. So, the, so when the woman is standing upon the moon, it simply represents a church whose foundation is the solid rock of God's immutable word. I want to stand upon the rock. How about you? All of the ground is sinking, sinking sand, friends. We must stand upon the rock, Christ Jesus. And then the Bible says that she has a crown of 12 stars. Well, what do these 12 stars represent? Notice in Revelation 1 verse 20, the Bible tells us that stars are a symbol of angels. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand. The seven stars are the what? Angels of the seven churches. And so in Bible prophecy, the stars represent angels. And friends, angels in the Greek language, the word angelos, simply means messenger. What does it mean? So when it says she has a crown of 12 stars, it simply means that she is guided by the light of 12 messengers, 12 angels, 12 messengers. And friends, where do we find 12 messengers in the Bible? In the Old Testament, we find the 12 patriarchs, the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the New Testament, we find the 12 apostles. In other words, this is a church of people that was constantly guided by 12 messengers. And so who is this woman that is clothed with the beauty of the glory of God? Well, friends, listen. In a broad sense, in a what kind of sense? In a broad sense, this woman represents God's faithful people in every single age. But in a more specific sense, it represents God's faithful church in the first century, 
during the time that Jesus, the seed, was born and came into this world. It represents the early apostolic church and the church of the first century, God's faithful people during the time of his first coming into the world, the people that Jesus would come through, those who were faithful to God. And friends, why was he to come into this world? Remember, what was the first gospel prophecy in Genesis 3.15? That the seed would come and crush the serpent's head. In other words, the seed would come to undo that which the serpent, Satan, had done. And so now he comes into this world as a humble babe, and as Jesus, the seed, comes into the world, the dragon was ready for his coming. And notice what the dragon sought to do as the seed came into the world. Now now let's go back to uh, Revelation chapter 12. Now notice verse 3. The Bible says, And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his head. His tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman. Who's the woman? But which church specifically? God's faithful in the first century. He stood before the woman, which was ready to deliver for to devour her child as soon as it was born. In other words, as the seed came into the world, the dragon was ready to destroy baby Jesus. And do you remember how he did it? He inspired Herod of the pagan Roman Empire, that was a dragon kingdom, to issue a decree to kill all male children under the age of two in the little town of Bethlehem. You can read it in Matthew 2, verse 16. And by this decree, the dragon sought to devour baby Jesus as soon as Jesus was to be born in this world. But God protected his seed, Jesus Christ. And even though the dragon sought to devour baby Jesus, Jesus was preserved all his life. And then finally, After 33 and a half years of walking on planet Earth, Jesus would then go to the cross in order to deliver a deadly blow to the head of the serpent. But at the same time, the serpent would bruise the heel of Jesus. It's referring to the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And by the way, let me just throw this in just for good measure. Do you remember the place where Jesus died? It was called Golgotha, which literally means the place of the skull. And friends, what is the skull? That's the head, isn't that right? He died at Calvary, and the word Calvary literally means cranium. Did you know that? What's the cranium? That's the head. Jesus died at the place of the skull on the cranium, and when he died, a great earthquake rent and tore the rocks. It crushed the place of the skull. It was a symbol of the death of Jesus, the seed, delivering a deadly blow to the head, the cranium of the serpent, Satan's kingdom. Can you say amen? Isn't that powerful? And through his death, He brought salvation in reach of all. Through his death, Jesus provided his jury, his people, dragon-proof evidence. What kind of evidence? Dragon-proof evidence that his kingdom is a just kingdom, that his law is a law of liberty, it's a law of freedom, and that God is completely merciful and completely just at the very same time. And so now God's jury, his people, those faithful to him, now they have unmistakable evidence that will secure a guilty verdict against Satan in the controversy between good and evil. A guilty verdict, a sentence that will bring about the eternal annihilation, eradication, and destruction of the dragon kingdom of Satan. And so now Jesus dies, the jurors have the evidence. It's clear that Satan's kingdom is not a good kingdom and that God's kingdom is just and fair. And so what Satan does now in prophecy, he redoubles his efforts to either destroy or to disqualify those jurors that have the evidence that was given at the cross. And so now notice what the dragon does. Revelation 12, now notice verse 13. It says, And when the dragon saw that he was cast onto the earth, he did what? Persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. You see, he tried to destroy Jesus, but he could not destroy Jesus. Jesus overcame Satan. He died on the cross through death, 
was able to destroy him, Satan, that had the power of death. And so now Jesus goes back to heaven. Satan, the serpent, can no longer touch Jesus. So now he attacks the jurors. He attacks the woman, the beauty of Jesus, the bride of Christ. He is trying to destroy the jurors so that they would not pass a guilty verdict upon him. And friends, this points to the persecutions of the Caesars in the early centuries. You remember, friends, that as soon as the early apostolic church got going, the Caesars of Rome, the dragon kingdom, began a fierce era of persecution. Emperors like Nero and Diocletian persecuted the early apostolic church and put them to cruel and torturous deaths. The apostle Peter was crucified upside down. The apostle Paul had his head chopped off by Nero. The dragon was angry at the jurors. He was trying to destroy them by persecution. The dragon was wroth with the woman. But friends, something interesting took place. You study history, you'll notice that the more Satan, the dragon, tried to destroy the church by persecution, the more they actually grew in number. The blood of the martyrs was like seed. The more they were persecuted, the more they began to grow and flourish and were blessed. The gates of hell could not prevail against the church of God. And friends, the gates of hell, that word hell, Hades, it's the grave. In other words, death could not destroy the church of God. The more they were put to death, the more they grew in number. So Satan could not destroy them. So he had to change his strategy. Instead of trying to destroy them by persecution, he had to disqualify them by deception and betrayal. And so what would Satan do? He would do the same thing he did in heaven. He would cause God's people to believe that they can live for God without God's law. He would infiltrate the church of God not as a dragon, because they would know the power of the dragon. That's persecution. He couldn't come into the church as a dragon. Now he had to come in disguise. He had to come as a serpent and as a devil, as a devil into the church. He couldn't destroy them. He had to disqualify them. And so now Satan, because, he can't, because the dragon persecuting power was not working, he now had to come in the form of the devil. And friends, do you know what the devil power of Satan is? The dragon power of Satan is persecution. The serpent power of Satan is deception. But friends, the devil power of Satan is the worst one of all. The devil power of Satan is betrayal. Let me show it to you in the Bible. Please write it down. In John 6, verse 70 and 71, Jesus answered them, Have not I chose, chosen you twelve? And one of you is a what? Devil. He spake of Judas, Iscariot, the son of Simon. For he it was that should what? Betray him, being one of the twelve. And so the dragon represents the betrayal power of satan just like judas who infiltrated the, the apostles who looked outwardly like a disciple of jesus but in his heart he was the one that betrayed christ that led to the crucifixion of jesus and this is exactly what what satan would do you see the seed of the woman came into the world jesus and now the woman is growing and growing persecution could not wipe her out so now satan would impregnate the church with a false seed a false christ the antichrist the devil looking like a disciple of Jesus, just like Judas. But in reality, that would teach things that would betray the very words of Christ himself. Now it was the time for the seed of the serpent, the dragon seed, to appear. And who is the seed of the dragon? It is this counterfeit beauty and beast union. This is the seed of the serpent, friends. The final seed in the last days, Satan's child, Satan's kingdom on earth. Brothers and sisters, it represents the Roman church state system the anti of Christ, a counterfeit seed. This system on earth, a man-made system that is centered in, in what they give to God, not in what God has given to them. So Satan rose up his own religious system that would counterfeit all that God had done, counterfeiting God's law, God's sanctuary, God's worship, God's sacrifice, and God's peace. In other words, what Satan was doing, friends, he was setting up his own counterfeit jury, a totally different jury that would live by totally different laws. 
He continues to persecute when he can through his dragon power. But deception and betrayal is his most successful way in disqualifying the world from being the Jewers in the controversy. And I want you to notice how the same power is described in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 8 and verse 25 tells us that through his cunning, this is talking about the same power, friends, the seed of the serpent, the dragon kingdom, Satan's child in the last days. Daniel 8 verse 25, it says, through his cunning, he shall cause what? Deceit to prosper under his rule. And he shall exalt himself in his heart. That's exactly what Lucifer did. You see, this is Satan's child. He shall exalt himself in his heart. And by peace shall destroy many and shall even rise against the prince of princes. Here we find a kingdom of cunning counterfeits. Deceit would reign under this rule and many would be destroyed, not so much by persecution, but they would be destroyed by a counterfeit peace. And friends, listen, just as the woman's seed was Jesus Christ, the serpent's seed is the Antichrist. Judas, looking like a disciple but betraying Christ, an unfaithful wife, claiming chastity but committing adultery against God and uniting with the political powers of the world. And so as Satan seeks to destroy the church, the true beauty of Christ, either through, de- either through deception, persecution, or betrayal, notice what God would do to protect his bride. In verse 6 now, it says, And the woman, this is God's church, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she had a place prepared of God, that they should feed her there, how long? <clears throat> a thousand, two hundred and threescore days. In other words, 1260 days. God's true beauty, the church, would be in hiding underground, protected from papal persecution. And friends, how long is 1260? It's the same thing as three and a half prophetic years. And we learned before that in prophecy, one prophetic day represents a literal year, according to Ezekiel 4.6 and Numbers 14.34. And so what the Bible is saying is that God's bride would remain in hiding for a period of 1,260 years. This was during the reign of the Antichrist, the Dark Ages. This was the seed of the dragon trying to attack and pushing the seed of the woman into the wilderness hiding places. And friends, all throughout that time period known as the Dark Ages, God always had a faithful seed, a faithful remnant of the woman that preserved the ancient faith of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen? But then after the 1260 years of persecution, Revelation then reveals the rise of the final seed of the woman, God's end time people in the last days, those who look just like Jesus. Friends, tomorrow in the next few days, we're going to learn about these time periods more in detail. But I want you to notice now, as we fast forward after the 1260-year reign of the Antichrist, the seed of the dragon, now God prophesies about the rise of the final seed of the woman, God's end-time church. Notice what it says. And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with who? Notice, he's not making war with the woman anymore. Do you know why? Because that woman, the early apostolic church, has passed off the seed. But that woman has a remnant, the remnant of her seed. In other words, that early apostolic church that had a pure faith, she has a remnant. And that word remnant means the last part, the leftovers. In other words, she has offspring. She has a seed that has the same pure faith. It says that this seed, which keep the what? Commandments of God and have the testimony of who? In other words, here's God's end time remnant church. These are God's law abiding jurors. You see, they keep the commandments of God. They are qualified jurors in these last days. And they have the testimony of Jesus. Friends, a testimony is an experience. Isn't that right? When you share your testimony, what are you sharing? 
You're sharing your experience. And these have the testimony of Jesus. They have the experience of Christ. You know why? Because Jesus is living inside of them. They are preserving the seed, Christ Jesus, the word of God, upholding the claims of God's holy law. And just as, listen, friends, just as the original seed, Jesus Christ, vindicated God's character and delivered a deadly blow to the head of the serpent on the cross, so too the final seed of the woman, God's end time people who look just like Jesus, will vindicate the justice and the fairness of the law of God in their own lives. And through the lives of God's end time people, the world will be able to see that God's law is a law of freedom. It's a law of peace. And friends, when God's law is vindicated through the lives of his end time people, even more evidence will be stacked up against Satan's false accusations towards God and his holy law. And then this will lead to the final destruction and eradication of the serpent and the dragon kingdom. Notice now, we're almost finished in Romans 16, verse 20. The Bible tells us, this is Paul speaking to the New Testament church, the woman and the seed of the woman. It says, and God and the God of peace shall bruise who? Satan under whose feet? Friends, whose feet? Under your feet. You see, God is going to do it just like he did at the cross. He's going to do it again at the end of time. He's going to bruise Satan under, not his feet this time, He's going to do it under the feet of his church. The final seed of the woman, the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen and amen. Friends, do you see it? What happened at the cross where Jesus vindicated the fairness of God's holy law and delivered a deadly blow to Satan's kingdom. So too at the end of time, through the final seed of the woman, the church, God is going to vindicate the claims of his holy law. And thus, brothers and sisters, this will be a final blow to Lucifer's kingdom of antinomianism. His accusations are proven false. Case is closed. And now God can destroy him and evil once and for all. And friends, when that happens, now the king of kings and the true prince is going to come. Can you say amen? And when he comes, the beautiful bride is going to be united with her heavenly husband. The beauty and the beast will be together. The, the lamb beast, Jesus. And they will live happily ever after throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity. Friends, we've seen this morning two kingdoms, two kings, two seeds, a contrast in the controversy. And as I mentioned before, whenever there's a contrast, there is a choice to be made. We see that the dragon wants to sacrifice you in order to save himself. Isn't that right? Get rid of the jury so that he could go free. But friends, the lamb's kingdom is just the opposite. The lamb sacrificed himself so that you can go free. Dragon sacrifices you so that he could go free, but the lamb would sacrifice himself to save us. Friends, this morning, whose beauty do you want to be? Who do you want as your husband? The beast or the lamb? Tonight or this morning, I want the lamb to be my heavenly husband. Can you say amen? I want to be his law-abiding jurors. I want to be a part of the Lamb kingdom that lasts forever. Is that your prayer and desire? If so, I invite you to bow your heads as we close this morning. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your goodness and your grace. Thank you so much that you have won the victory, that the seed of the woman has vanquished and will overcome the seed of the dragon. This morning, Lord, we want to be a part of your kingdom. We want you as our king. So take our hearts now and make us ready. Make us your beauty. Clothed not with artificial light of our own self-righteousness. But Father, would you please clothe us with the glory of your son, Jesus Christ. Because we realize, Lord, that we can't live 
and be holy and be perfect and be righteous without you and your law. You're the only one, friend, Lord, that can make us holy and righteous. And so we pray that you would do for us what is it impossible for us to do for ourselves. Save us, dear God, in your kingdom is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.